Good morning. If you have the Bible with you, you can turn to Revelation chapter 1. Book of Revelation, we're going to be in the first chapter. If you're somewhat new to the Bible, it's the very last book of God's Word. It's like that uh, Bobby leading in, in us in the uh, He Is Risen uh, little country church I once pastored. I coached them to respond to He Is Risen with, Ain't That the Truth? <laughs> so I thought I would try it because it hasn't really caught on. I'm still kind of pushing it. So if you will indulge me. He is risen. Amen. I love it. All right. Awesome. It is the truth. Easter changes everything. Maybe you know this, maybe you don't, but leading up to the time of Christ and even for a number of years after, there were a lot of um, Jewish would-be messiahs, those who claimed to be the revolutionary king that was going to come and overthrow the oppressors to establish uh, the, the kingdom of God on earth, zealots of all kinds, political dissidents of all kinds, wannabe messiahs. And most of them ended up on Roman crosses. The Romans were exceptionally good at putting down uh, political insurrections or perceived insurrections. And so most of these would-be messiahs ended up on crosses, just as Jesus did. Now, none of them, of course, made atonement for the sins of mankind like Jesus did. But if we can put ourselves in the the sandals, as it were, of Jesus' followers right after the crucifixion, in those between times, the yesterday of this moment, the, the Saturday for them, the atoning work of Christ on the cross was was not on the forefront of their mind. In fact, there probably was a little bit of um, discouragement. We know that there perhaps was even some doubt. Maybe he wasn't the Messiah. The Messiah was supposed to overthrow our uh, captors. The uh, Messiah was supposed to establish on earth the kingdom. And and I know Jesus kept talking about how he was going to die, but we were thinking that was metaphorical or some sort of spiritual sacrifice. They were in a period of mourning. They were thinking, perhaps, at least in their weaker moments, that all hope was lost. But we know three days later, hope came blasting out of an empty grave. Easter is the verification of the atoning work of Good Friday. Easter is the day that Christ puts an exclamation point on it is finished. Easter changes everything. The Lutheran church historian Jaroslav Pelikan wrote in a Yale Department of History newsletter, if Christ is risen, nothing else matters. And if Christ is not risen, nothing else matters. It was the hope of Easter that turned the disciples mourning into dancing. It was the hope of Easter that turned them from doubters into martyrs. And it's the hope of resurrection that spills into the pages of this last book of The Bible, the book of Revelation, where the risen, glorified, ascended Son of God gives the churches, through the Apostle John, an exhilarating vision of the world-changing power of resurrection. Now, my preaching text this morning is verses 17 and 18, just two verses in chapter 1. But out here at the front, I want to start reading at verse 12, just so we can see some of this context here. Revelation chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. Then I turned to see whose voice it was that spoke to me. When I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was one like the Son of Man, dressed in a robe and with a golden sash wrapped around his chest. 
The hair of his head was white as wool, white as snow, and his eyes like a fiery flame. His feet were like fine bronze as it is fired in a furnace, and his voice like the sound of cascading waters. He had seven stars in his right hand, and a sharp double-edged sword came from his mouth, and his face was shiny like the sun at full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. He laid his right hand on me and said, Don't be afraid. I am the first and the last, and the living one. I was dead, but look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. This is the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. Father, on this precious Easter morning, we ask that you would put the hope of resurrection deeper into our hearts, moving even perhaps some from death into life this very morning. We ask all of that, that we might see the glory of your Son, and in his name we pray these things. Amen. Um, it's, it's the Apostle John, the beloved disciple who is receiving this vision. This is some 60 years after the resurrection and ascension of his friend, of his Lord Jesus. And the churches that John has helped establish over the decades are undergoing severe persecution. John himself has been exiled by the Roman emperor to a, a, a Greek island called Patmos. And this might sound like a nice retirement. Oh, you know, John's getting up there in years. Let's send him to a Greek isle to sort of live out his final years, right? Who wouldn't want to have a Greek island exodus? But this place was not the kind of place you would want to retire to. The, the place was occupied by other political exiles. Not all of them Christian, of course. It's guarded by Roman soldiers so that nobody could escape. Those on the island had to secure their own food and shelter. They were basically just thrown into the exposure of this harsh place. Many died of exposure. Many died of starvation. If they weren't murdered at the hands of their fellow exiles. Tradition tells us that John was sustained in some part by the support of the churches who would travel to the island to bring him supplies. But we don't know that for certain. In any event, Patmos was not a pleasant place to be. And it was one of a few places that Romans sent political dissidents and other criminals to basically to waste away and die. John was sent here to waste away and die. John would have been about 80 or 90 years old. Life on this island would not have been easy for him. It would be dangerous. And he was probably at the very least tempted to extreme discouragement and perhaps even depression or despair. So imagine then having given 60 years of your life to testify to the power of the gospel of Jesus, not to wind down your life in the comfort of a family home or the recreation of retirement, but sent away to die in a treacherous condition. Imagine John spending his days looking back at his youth and holding on to that memory of the empty tomb. Getting up each day, just trying to survive, wondering which day would be his last, all the while remembering that tomb was empty. That tomb was empty. And then one day, as he's picturing in his mind's eye that empty tomb, the light of day gets brighter and brighter. And an angel appears and says, hey, old man, I want to show you something. And John gets a journey through the veil as his reward before death, a glorious foretaste of the eternal reward awaiting him after death. He's being given one final message to deliver to the churches. 
And it's a doozy of a message. As he receives this long vision about the end of the age, about the second coming of Christ Jesus, about the final judgment, about the restoration of all things. It's just another blazing reminder to John, witness to the resurrection, John, that Easter changes everything. John gets to see his friend Jesus again. And he picks up a bit where he left off because the last time John uh, uh, saw Jesus, he was ascending. Jesus was ascending into heaven in the radiance of his majesty. And now he sees Jesus from heaven in that same majesty. Verses 12 through 16 give us that beautiful picture of Jesus that John sees. And of course, this is what happens when you see something like that. The sword from the mouth and the, the blazing brightness. When I saw him, John says, verse 17, I fell at his feet like a dead man. But Jesus laid his right hand on him and said, don't be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead, but look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. And this little two verse moment is a gigantic reminder that Easter changes everything. The message of Jesus to John and to the seven churches in Asia is a message to us now. And Jesus is making three major claims in this passage. He's making an historical claim. He's making a personal claim. And finally, at least implicitly, he's making an invitational claim. A historical claim, a personal claim, and an invitational claim. In other words, he's telling us, number one, what he's done. Number two, who he is. And then based on what he's done and who he is. Thirdly, what that means for us. So I'm just going to chart through these three claims. And give us an exploration of this little exchange. Jesus makes a historical claim. Which is, he died but is now alive. He makes a historical claim. He died but is now alive. The historical claim about what he's done is rather straightforward. He puts it very plainly to John. I was dead, but look, I'm alive forever and ever. This is the essence of the gospel message, the historical news that Jesus died and rose again. He did not die and rise again in the hearts of his followers. He did not die and rise again metaphorically. Or merely spiritually. He really did die. And he really did rise again. As the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 20. But in fact Christ has been raised from the dead. Not in symbol. Not in theory. Not in spirituality. But in fact Christ has been raised from the dead. Now every year around this time. You and I have to put up with the predictable onslaught of criticism and skepticism about the Easter miracle. You see it on like Time Special Edition and the news rack at the grocery store and maybe the A&E or History Channel specials that come on cable TV. Did Jesus really rise from the grave? Is, is, Is the resurrection really a miracle? There's even some seminary professors, not at our local seminary, thank goodness. But so many professors who will say things like, you don't have to believe in a bodily resurrection to have hope this Easter and so on and so forth. We have to deal with these sort of nitpicking and skepticism and erosion of the facts, or at least the, the proclamation of the fact. I just want to chart some of these 
these um, criticisms and, and, and arguments sometimes that we hear. One of the most popular in the last several years, I don't remember hearing this when I was like in college, but over the last probably 15 to 20 years, are um, the claims that the resurrection of Christ is just Christians rewriting some pagan myths. These kind of float around in these little memes sometimes on social media and those sorts of things. That basically the Christian writers are, um, or the writers of the Bible are just sort of co-opting some mythological stories of resurrection. Here's what's really interesting about that, because they play really fast and loose with the facts. Most of the pagan parallels that they are proposing actually post-date the Gospels. They come after the writing of the Christian account of Christ's resurrection. So it it doesn't make much sense that Christians would be borrowing from them when these things um, allegedly were written later, right? So the myth of Adonis, uh, that was in AD 150. Uh, 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 Phrygian was in the 3rd century. And then what's also interesting, once you dig into some of these um, alleged resurrection accounts, you discover they're not really resurrections. They'll, they'll say, oh, there was a moment this sort of god or demigod went into the underworld and then came back out of the underworld. Well, he didn't die, right? He entered into some kind of underworld in that myth. It's not the same thing as what Christians claim about Christ, that he really died. And then he rose again. There's also... Um, you know, an, an enduring theory about what happened um, to Christ that the reason um, the Christians think he was resurrected is actually because he didn't really die. He was really crucified, but he really didn't die. It's called the swooning theory. I don't know if you've ever heard that, um, that Jesus just sort of swooned. On the surface, I guess if you're inclined to discount the resurrection, this theory may be appealing. But really, once you dig into what was actually happening to Jesus or to anyone being crucified, it really begins to, I think, uh, require more faith than the Christian account, right? So the very idea that, that Christ would be scourged by the Romans and the scourging account is to have, I mean, the flesh pulled off of your back down to the bone, the, the massive loss of blood that that would involve, not, not, you know, not to mention just the, the brutality, the, the beating of that, the crown of thorns. To then be suspended with nails through your wrists and feet onto a cross. To have a spear shoved into your side. To be left to this exposure. Basically to rot alive on a cross. It assumes the Romans were not good at their job. I mean, crucifixion, as as brutal and torturous as it was, was a finely oiled machine by the Roman mechanism. They knew efficiently how to kill someone or if they wanted to do it inefficiently as well. But death was the certain outcome of the crucifixion. Otherwise, they would not have gone this route. It also assumes that Jesus, now having uh, endured all of this brutality, was then put into a cold tomb for three days, and then somehow, without medical attention, gets up, goes on a seven-mile hike. That's, I find that really interesting as well. Somehow he walks seven miles with his disciples after the fact. Like I said, this requires more faith, I think, even, than the Christian account. One of my favorites, because I just love the images this pulls up, not because I think it's true or anything, but just the imagery of it, is that Jesus' body was stolen by his disciples, which I think has got to be proposed by people who don't actually read the Gospels, because the disciples are pretty much morons, like, all the time. Like, do these guys sound like Ocean's Eleven? You know, I don't think... It assumes the Romans are inept, that they can't secure things. It assumes some you know, courage and some cunning by the disciples. None of this really makes sense. In fact, we have not just the biblical proclamation of the resurrection. We have good evidence 
of the resurrection. First of all, there's no precedent for this thing. It's been forecast in the scriptures, yes. And looking back to the light of Christ's resurrection, we can see in the Old Testament these pictures. There was a Jewish expectation of sort of the resurrection of the body at the end. But the very idea that the Messiah was going to die and rise again, that felt unprecedented to them. They were not expecting that sort of thing. In a way, it almost sounded like, now we know it's not because we see the whole of Scripture now looking back. But in a way, they felt this was kind of an innovation. Um, This is why the disciples were so distraught when Jesus was executed. Secondly, this is kind of a cultural note, something that we sometimes miss. The, the Gospels recorded the very first witnesses to the resurrection of Christ were women. Now, culturally speaking, if you're trying to fabricate a hoax back in that day, women were not considered reliable witnesses. You could not bring women into a court situation to testify, right? They did not see women with equal dignity. Culturally, they would not be seen as reliable. And yet, if the Gospel writers say the first people to see that Christ was risen were the women. They would not have put that in there if it were not true. It, it's an eyewitness thing. This is how it happened. If you're trying to perpetrate a hoax in the first century about something like this, that's not the route that you would take. Thirdly, there is no body. No one has ever produced the body of Jesus. All the Romans would have to do is say, oh, no, you got the wrong tomb. He's actually here. His body was never produced. Also, there were a number of eyewitnesses that are um, uh, you know, testifying to the resurrection of Christ. In 1 Corinthians 15, in fact, um, Paul mentions that there were more than 500 who saw Jesus after his crucifixion and his resurrection. These are people who, when hearing the claim, would be able to say, yes, I saw him. 500 is a big number. Okay. You also have to consider, just logically, that... Jesus' followers, his closest followers, the ones who knew for, for real whether he really came back or not, like they would know if they're perpetrating a lie. And Jesus' brothers, for instance, that these people would go to their death for a lie. Now, we know that lots of people, you know, martyr themselves for false religions and those sorts of things. But that's many uh, years removed very often from an initial claim. These are folks who would know for a fact whether Jesus came back or didn't, whether he was still dead or he wasn't. And they went to their death proclaiming he's not dead. He came back. Finally, of course, we have the growth of the church. How a church could grow under the threat of persecution by courageous men and women proclaiming that Jesus Christ really was alive. This is what scholar N.T. Wright says. He says, as a historian, I cannot explain the rise of early Christianity unless Jesus rose again, leaving an empty tomb behind him. What happens in this resurrection miracle? Jesus didn't swoon. He didn't faint and then somehow become revived. He didn't just go into cardiac arrest and then was somehow brought back. He really died. Three days later, he arose again. He was him, but he was different. There's a glorified body. His his body was somehow transformed, recognizable and yet unrecognizable, able to do normal things and yet able to do very abnormal things or supernatural things. We are not left with any other option credibly, and we're certainly not left with any other option biblically, except Jesus really died and he really rose again. In fact, John Updike in his famous Easter poem says, Make no mistake, 
If he rose at all, it was as his body. If the cell's dissolution did not reverse, the molecules re-knit, the amino acids rekindle, the church will fall. He says, let us not mock God with metaphor. No, Christ was not risen in symbol, but in fact. The historical claim is as clear as it is credible. And we would have to call Jesus himself a liar if we disbelieve this. He says, I was dead, but look, I'm alive forever and ever. He really died. He really was buried. He really rose again. And then he really did ascend to heaven where he reigns both bodily and glorified, both incarnate and omnipresent. This is the historical claim that Jesus makes. But secondly, Jesus makes that personal claim. He makes a personal claim, which is this. He is God. Jesus makes a personal claim. He is God. He makes a claim about who he is. And we see this in verse 17. I am the first and the last. Now, what exactly is Jesus saying here? It's very similar to the moment during his ministry when he says, Before Abraham was, I am. He is claiming the divine name. He is asserting his deity. He's proclaiming, if you will, his godness. That Jesus is testifying to his own deity should be seen as the direct result of his resurrection. Because while the other resurrections in the Gospels needed a third party, Jesus himself, to command the resurrection, Jesus doesn't need anyone to order him to come forth. There's no one at Jesus' you know, tomb going, come forth, Jesus. No, he comes forth of his own volition. In the power of His Spirit, He comes forth. I am alive forever and ever, He says. And we say, yes, sir. No one commands you. I had a friend who was a Jehovah's Witness. And he had a very difficult time with any belief in the deity of Jesus Christ. He just couldn't get there. We're looking very often at the same Bible verses. Now, their version of the Bible sometimes twists some things in order to get around the deity of Christ. But... Very often, I'm showing him in my Bible verses that he would say, yeah, I see what it says, I, I agree that, but, but I don't see it the way you see it. We're looking at the same claims, the same evidence, but he's seeing something else. I can't get beyond the abundance of references to Jesus being God in the flesh. Philippians chapter 2, Paul says, he was in very nature God and equal to God. Colossians 2.9 says all the fullness of deity dwells bodily in him. Titus 2.13, he's called God and Savior. In Hebrews 1.8, the Father calls Jesus God. In John 1.1, it says he was there in the beginning and that he is God. In John chapter 5, the Jews understand by calling God his Father, Jesus isn't just sort of saying, like, I'm subservient, but he's making himself equal. I'm of the same stuff as the Father, he is saying. In John 10, he says, I and the Father are one. And it made them want to stone him for blasphemy. You don't stone someone for blasphemy if you don't believe that they're making a claim to be God. When Thomas, poor Thomas, he gets that rap, you know, doubting Thomas, I mean... We don't say denying Peter. It's so weird that Thomas somehow. I'm sure he's just eye rolling in heaven every time he hears it. But when Thomas finally sees, when he can touch, we assume, because Christ condescends to let him do that. Thomas doesn't say, oh, you are alive. He, He says, my Lord and my God. He calls him God and Jesus doesn't correct him. 
And in John 14, Jesus says something that, if he were not God, would be very arrogant. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. I am the first and the last, he is saying here. Jesus is announcing that he is the end-all, be-all. For Christians, Jesus is the first and the last, just as he says he is. He is the great high priest, surpassing all priests. He is the good shepherd, surpassing all shepherds. He is the great judge, surpassing all judges. He's the king of kings, surpassing all kings. He is the Lord of lords, surpassing all earthly masters. He is the bridegroom, surpassing all husbands. He is the rabbi, Christ, surpassing all preachers. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, surpassing all the best of everybody everywhere. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And you know who we can only say that about? God. God never changes. The major problem with the contemporary scholars' approach to Jesus' resurrection is that they come to do the work of autopsy and not adoration. But Jesus Christ is the apex of all that is precious. He is the center of all that is glorious and delightful. He is the point of your existence and of existence itself. He is the Son of the living God, the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last who was and is and is to come. Oh, come, let us adore Him, not scrutinize, utilize, or analyze Him. The personal claim that Jesus makes about Himself is that He is the God of the universe and He deserves our awe, our reverence, our worship, our love, our devotion. If you are not a follower of Jesus, I want you to see clearly, with the Spirit's help, and praying the Spirit will help you to see clearly in this passage, perhaps for the first time, that Jesus is not just a good teacher, He's not just a peasant carpenter, He's not just sending out peace, love, and good vibes in the world, but He is God in the flesh, and He is worthy of your worship. Jesus here makes a personal claim, He is God. Thirdly and finally, we turn to Jesus' invitational claim. Jesus' invitational claim. He makes an invitational claim, which is this. He can save you. He can save you. Jesus' invitational claim about how we ought to respond to what he's done and to who he is, is seen really in the entire passage as we follow the gospel storyline of the two verses. And Paul in the worship time or the music time was helping us to see that there's a gospel arc to things. We sort of put it into our worship order. So we see sort of the the narrative storyline of the gospel just in the way we do our worship gathering. But we also see it in texts of scripture as well. This is sort of the the short version, the abridged plot points of the gospel storyline. Okay, the gospel, which means good news, is the good news that Jesus's death and resurrection provides salvation for all who will believe in him. So the gospel storyline is how we see this news reflected in a passage of Scripture. It follows plot points like this. The reality of sin being confronted with our falling short of God's glory, God's holiness, and our sin in the light of that holiness. We then have the intervention of God's redeeming grace. We stand in need of a Savior. We stand in need of salvation. And God, in His great love for sinners pours out unilaterally grace for them to redeem them. And when those sinners turn and receive that grace, they're given the gift of eternal life. 
So there's three basic plot points there. And here's where the gospel storyline begins in this passage. It's reflected implicitly when John at first sees Jesus. In verse 17, what does he do? He falls at his feet like a dead man. Now, why is this the first indication of the gospel storyline? Well, because falling as though dead is what sinners do when they are faced with Christ's glory for the first time. At the end of Mark's gospel in Mark chapter 16, as the two Marys come to the tomb and find that it is empty, the angel that is there says, don't be alarmed. But what do they do? They flee in fear, it says. Trembling and astonishment had seized them. When the angels first announced the incarnation to the shepherds, right? Now we go back to the Christmas story. The glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with fear. They were afraid. In Isaiah 6, when Isaiah is in the temple and the glory of the Lord fills the place, he becomes undone and he cries out, Woe is me, I am lost. In Nehemiah 8, as Ezra and Nehemiah read the book of the law to the people, they're rehearsing all of the commandments of God and all the things uh, that we're entitled to do to um, apply the commandments of God. At the end, what happens? The people weep. They're broken underneath the weighty holiness of God. Hebrews 10.31 says, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. When we see who we are in the light of who God is, The conviction, the spiritual discombobulation, our need becomes so apparent in that light. The desperation becomes real. You might not be an emotional person, but you cannot be saved if you don't see that you're lost. Blessed are the poor in spirit, Jesus says. If you don't see your need to be saved, you will not come to Christ for salvation. If you can't see that you're a sinner who deserves the wrath of God, you won't repent and receive his forgiveness. So John sees this glory and he does what natural people do. He falls to his knees. He falls to his feet. He falls down in penitence. I cannot stand in the blazing holiness of the living God. That's the first point in the gospel storyline. What's the second point? What does Jesus do? John falls down like a dead man. And Jesus looks down at him, verse 17, and says, That's right, you sick, righteous, uh, you know, unrighteous uh, wretch. Right? Oh. We don't have any on the screen. So some of you don't have your Bible open. are like, that doesn't sound like Jesus. <laughs> well, sometimes it does, actually. But that's not what he does. John has fallen at his feet. Feels dead. I cannot stand. Woe is me. I, I am lost. I, I, and Jesus... Puts his right hand on him and says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. That's the second plot point in the gospel storyline. The intervention of grace, the redeeming grace of God. When we come to Christ in reverence and repentance, he doesn't brush us off. He doesn't kick us around. He welcomes us. He embraces us. Jesus, right after his resurrection, Facing Peter, knowing Peter had just denied him. What does Jesus do with him? Cooks him breakfast. He cooks him breakfast. He responds to our fear with words of peace and comfort. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, and I will give you rest. 
All that the Father gives me will come to me, he says in John 6, 67. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast away. Don't be afraid, Jesus says. I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead, but look, I'm alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. We come in conviction and then we experience not condemnation, but the loving grace of Jesus. Because of Christ's cross, we can receive the forgiveness of sins. But the gospel story goes deeper than that. The cross is not the end of the story. Easter changes everything. It is because of Easter that the gospel is not simply about having sins forgiven and getting a ticket to heaven. Although it is those things. It's about Jesus remaking everything, including us. Jesus in making these claims about what he's done. I was dead. I'm alive forever and ever. And who he is. I'm the first and the last. He's granting those who seek forgiveness a life that is bigger than a blank slate and a clean start. As wonderful as a blank slate and a clean start are. This is the whole point of the Easter story of resurrection. That heaven isn't just waiting up there for when people die. Heaven has come to earth in and through Christ. It is breaking into the very fabric of creation. It's rewiring the great system in a glorious restoration. And so we come to that third point in the gospel storyline. The gospel doesn't simply forgive our sins. It promises the gift of eternal life. Jesus has gone right into the brokenness of the world. He's gone right into death itself. And straight to the destination and fear of every person. The grave and judgment. And he comes out saying, I got the keys. The keys represent authority. As in giving his followers the keys to the kingdom. Death and hell do not run rampant in the world. Believe it or not. They are not rogue elements in a fallen world. They are subject to the sovereignty of the one who controls and rules over them. Jesus has died having received the condemnation of God's wrath on the cross, and he has come out the other side. And he has done something extraordinary here in his dying and rising again. Something peculiar to death and the grave itself. He didn't merely survive. He doesn't come crawling out of that tomb. He conquered. He conquered. And when Jesus comes back from the dead, he does not come back exactly as he was. He is changed. He is the same Jesus. He has a body, but he's been transformed. He's glorified. So he's eating breakfast and he's being touched, but he's walking through locked doors. The resurrection proves that not even death escapes Christ's lordship. He has killed sin at the cross. He has disarmed all the spiritual rulers and authorities. And in conquering the grave, he emerges with the keys to death in his triumphant fist. By going into death and coming back out, transformed and victorious, Christ changes our destiny so that death and decay and decomposition are not just trifles. They're effectively non-issues. Christian, they will not have the last word. Ever since the fall, everything has been winding down, dying and decaying. But since the gospel of Christ's life, death and resurrection, Jesus has been building his kingdom so that the Father's will will be done on earth just as it is in heaven. Creation will be restored to better than good. The curse vanquished. It will be an endless stage more glorious than it was even before Adam sinned. We will not be disembodied spirits prancing around some kind of ethereal outer spatial heaven. We will have new bodies 
with which to dance and sing and worship and work and play and love and laugh and eat and drink and run and swim and on and on and on forever and ever without pain, without grief, without sweat, without sin. And Jesus is going to give those bodies to us. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, Paul says. We shall all be changed in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. Outwardly, we might be wasting away. Inwardly, we're being renewed day by day. And Christ's resurrection is just the first fruits, the Bible says, of our own. So those who are saved by Jesus will get their own resurrection body with which to enjoy that new heavens and new earth. And our resurrection body, we can assume because Paul says his is the, the first sort of first model, ours is going to be like that, will be like Christ's resurrection body. Imagine being able to eat breakfast and not even have to open the door to go in to do it. You just walk through the wall where the biscuits at. Amazing. And it's him, but it doesn't exactly, it's, it, it looks like him, John 20, 19, 20, but it didn't look like him, Luke 24, 15, and 16. Our resurrection bodies will be us, but the real us, the true us, the us we were meant to be, the us revealed in Christ and reflective of Christ. At the moment of everlasting day, because of the resurrection of Jesus, we who trust in him will finally, finally will be alive. As Dwight Moody famously quipped, Someday you will read in the papers that D.L. Moody of East Northfield is dead. Don't you believe it for a moment? He says, At that moment I shall be more alive than I am now. Paul continues to say, For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of the resurrection of Jesus, the Christian's vision of death requires a radical overhaul, a redefinition. We think of death now as a kind of sleep. And we go from fearing death to actually mocking it. Where's your sting? Where's your sting, death? Right? Where would we get this authority, this position, this arrogance over death? We get it from our King Jesus, who holds the keys to death and to Hades, who says, I died and I swallowed up death from the inside. Jonathan Edwards, I love the image that he says. He says, the devil had, as it were, swallowed up Christ as the whale did Jonah. But he was deadly poison to him. Jesus poisoned death. And he gave him a mortal wound in his own bowels. He was soon sick of the morsel. And he was forced to do to him as the whale did to Jonah. Throw him up. To this day he is heart sick of what he then swallowed as his prey. Death swallows up Jesus. Jesus poisons death from the inside. And eventually death has got to vomit him back out. And death has been sick and dying ever since. The grave swallowed Christ. But Christ comes out victorious over the grave. Fear not, the risen Jesus says. Fear nothing. No man, no devil, no pain, no trial, no problems, no sufferings. Because he holds the keys to death and Hades. It doesn't mean those things don't hurt. It doesn't mean those things don't make us sad. It just means we do not need to be afraid. Easter changes 
everything. Everything. Later in this vision, we read in Revelation chapter 20, verse 6. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them. This is the invitational claim of the gospel because you could say this too. I died and I'm alive forevermore. If you come to Christ in faith, repenting of your sins and believing in him, you can be united to him through faith. You can become as secure as he is so that his death becomes yours and his eternal life becomes yours. The Bible says if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. But to have this triumph over death, you must not see yourself as over the gospel. It must not be beneath you. If we will say, I can't do this. I cannot manage this. I cannot save myself. I need you, God. I want you, God. Forgive me, God. Receive me, God. We can hear by God's grace, the full assurance of Christ in his welcome. He will look to you and he will say, don't be afraid. I was dead, but I'm alive forever and ever. And now you are too. I hope that you want that this morning. Easter can become just such a cultural moment. And there's lots of fun things that we have enjoyed around the holiday of Easter. But let us never forget That what we celebrate on this day is a historical fact that changes everything. That changes everything. And if you have not been changed by this, I pray that this morning you would, that you would reach out to Jesus in faith. And if you need somebody to talk to about that, I'd be glad to do it. Any of our pastors would as well. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your son, Christ Jesus. That you sent him to die and rise again for us. Father, I pray that you would move by the power of your spirit. Any lost in this room, any person still dead in their sins, anyone not following your son, I pray that you would move them to accept this invitation. To turn from their sin and put their faith in your son. We know that you're still saving people for your glory. We ask that you would continue to do that. And we pray all these things in the name of your Son, the name above all names, Jesus Christ. Amen.